Hello, world. Welcome to the Mile High Fi Podcast. My name is Carl Jensen, and I'm here with Doug Cunnington. And we have a very special guest today. Tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Jillian Johnsrode, uh, and I am a writer and a podcaster and a coach and uh, a drinker of tea, mostly drinker of tea, but sometimes those other things. Jillian, I, I've known you for like, I don't know how many years now, probably only two or three, but that seems like forever in the world of blogging and financial independence. I don't, it's probably a little bit longer than that. I, I remember you had asked me to do a guest post, and I think I took at least a year to do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I apologize for that once again. <laughs> well, how how long ago did you quit? Because I mailed you a retirement gift. How how many years ago was that? Wow. So I am way off. Good memory. That and I do remember that with that Huckleberry licorice. I love licorice, and that was April of 2017. So geez, almost five years. Yeah. Yeah. You're shortchanging us. <laughs> I, I know five years is like an eternity in the FI community. Most podcasts or blogs probably don't even last five months. So there you have it. Yeah. So let's get started. Do you have a good story to open up with, Jillian? Yeah. So in in this world of content creation online, way back when I was just starting, it was like six years ago. I think I started six years ago. Um you know, when you're starting, like everything's so exciting. And I got kind of my first, one of my first big breaks, like uh, an article that I wrote was going to be put on this big curation site. And I was so excited, but I didn't realize um, that authors very rarely write the titles in news articles and curation sites, usually the editor writes the title. Uh, and the editor picked a title that was very shaming, very <laughs> inflammatory, uh, which isn't exactly my brand um, or who I am as a person. And people read that title and they went straight to the comment section and just like unloaded on me, like so negative, so angry, so upset, and kind of rightfully so. It was it was a crap title. I never would have picked it. Um, but I was a mess. Like I I was like binge eating. I couldn't sleep. I was waking up at like 3 a.m. with all of these rebuttals. I was trying to explain myself in the comments. I was trying to defend um, you know, this story. And finally, I was just a mess. And I'm only a couple months into writing at this point. And I emailed um, Jay Money, who's another blogger, who's like my very first blogging friend. And I was like, how do you deal with this? Like, I'm a mess. And what I had internalized was I'm not cut out for this. Like, this isn't a good fit for me. I thought writing was going to be a safe pursuit. It feels very dangerous. Um, and he said, oh, sweetie you never read the comments. And I just thought, wait, that's an option. Like I didn't <laughs> even know, I didn't even know that, 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 that was a choice that I could have made. And I was like, Oh, there's a lot to learn. Um, apparently on how to navigate this online life. So I have a similar story. I, I was at FinCon pretty early on in my blogging career. And one of our posts happened to go live on Yahoo or something like that. It was a big site. And I was talking to Brandon, the mad scientist about it. And he looked at me and he said, just out of the blue, never read the comments. And I'm so thankful for it because it's, 
it's always a, a shit show when you go down into the comments. I remember we had another story that went big. Uh, and this one was Yahoo, I remember. And our neighbor sent us this ominous text in the middle of it. She's like, are you guys okay? How's it going? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. Is our house on fire or something? Did the, <laughs> did the kid fall? She's like, no, we saw your story. And, and the comments are just horrible. So I've got a question back to you, Jillian. I used to be kind of tempted to read the comments, even despite having that advice. And I've since gotten past that. Did you find it hard not to read the comments? And do you find it difficult now? Because there still is a chance that perhaps you could provide value to someone because despite all the assholes in there, there, there are still reasonable people in there. And you feel kind of bad that you can't respond to them. So do you ever feel tempted? Yeah. Um, you know, in the book I talk about, you make the thing, you make the rules and you kind of have to make the rules that work for you. So there's some comments that I will always read. Um, I always look through all my Twitter notifications. I always look through all of my Instagram notifications, all the comments on my blog. I read every single one of those. Um, and then there's comments that I will maybe read like YouTube, um, but news articles typically have the worst comments. Um, so if I'm really tempted, I have a system where my husband will read them and kind of like give me a heads up because it kind of bugs him, but he doesn't care as much as I do. Uh, I think because like he's not the content creator, he's just like annoyed as a normal person would be annoyed about anything. Um, so yeah, sometimes he'll, he'll read them for me and kind of give me like, here's the temperature of, of this article. Cool. Got it. And a lot of times we're disappointed when expectations don't line up with, you know, what we were hoping for, what we thought was going to happen and that sort of thing. So I'm curious when that first article went to the curation site, what did you think was going to happen? What did you think the comments might be? You know, it was, I thought it was an interesting, thoughtful article. Um, and so I was, I was hoping for that response. And, you know, every time you have something, especially in the early days, like something goes on into a bigger audience and you think, oh, this is like, this is going to be it. Like, this is the break I've been waiting for. Um, and it never is, because uh, that's just not how it works. But, um, yeah, I was hoping for something like thoughtful and nuanced and like an interesting discussion uh, was not that. Uh, I don't think most people even read the article. They just read the title and were like, that pissed me off and went straight to the comments to let me know. Right. And, and nowadays, what what are your expectations when maybe when you're covered by a bigger outlet or something like that. And I know you have the great system now where you're insulated and there's a buffer between you and the, the commenters. Yeah. You know, the, I think my expectations and Carl, you might be able to relate to this. One is there's going to be something factually incorrect in it. I've never read an article about myself that was a hundred percent correct. So I've learned to just kind of let that go when, when people make factual errors. Um, and the bigger point is it can't be the whole story. There's no way that 800 words, 2000 words can encapsulate the entire story and answer every single person's question about my life. Like I could write a hundred thousand words and it would not be the entire story. So when people are angry, 
but you didn't address every aspect and every point. I just kind of have to let it go and be like, yeah, it can't be like a thousand words will never be my entire even financial story. Yeah. And that's a good tip for life in general, no matter uh, how a person comes across. Uh, we all encounter abrasive people, whether in traffic or at the grocery store, but they're the way they acted that day is a culmination of 40 or 50 years of experience and upbringing. So to try to judge people from one tiny, tiny slice of their life is pretty ridiculous. No one should ever do it. And I'm guilty of doing it in the past too, but we shouldn't, people are angry or in their place because of a culmination of events. Mm -hmm. So, And yeah, the, the media and the whole title thing, I, I had one where they changed the title was Meet the Man Who Saved Like a Million Dollars in Four Years. And I have never, ever claimed that. We started <laughs> out with $586,000. So we did not accumulate that much money that amount of time. But then people to see that. And like you said, they go right to the comments and, well, it, we must have a great job. So privileged to make that kind of money or blah, 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 or he's lying or blah, blah, blah. So it's uh, the media's interests aren't the same as ours. They want to get people to click and to listen. Mm -hmm. And that's the same for cable news networks. And you always have to keep that in mind when you read or see these articles. Yep. Yeah. Outrage is one of the elements that makes something the most attractive and shareable on the internet is if it can outrage people. Um, and it's, it's tough for content creators like me that really, I don't dabble in outrage. Like it's just not my jam. Nuanced conversation, uh, complex thoughts and ideas are kind of more my speed, but it's outrage that gets the clicks and the retweets and, uh, the traction. Yeah, and that's why our country is at the place it is right now. But we don't talk politics, so we are not going to go any further on that. Jillian, tell us the title of your book, and please give us a brief synopsis, your new book. Yeah, it's called Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World. Um, and it's really, it's for anyone who has a business that they're trying to, to share it online, to find either an audience or their customers. Uh, it's super applicable, especially to small businesses who kind of know that maybe they should be online, maybe they should be creating content, but they're like, uh, it's just easier to put up like a bigger sign and hope that works instead uh, because it can be so nerve wracking to share stuff online, whether it's even just Facebook posts or Facebook ads or anything. Yeah, I think your synopsis shortchanges you a little bit and doesn't do the book the full justice it should do, but I'll get to that later on. But keep that in the back of your mind. I'd like to talk about some of the things I found particularly interesting or helpful when I read the book. Um, the first one was in your introduction, you talk about what works in your daily life doesn't work online. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, that it also kind of stems from... Uh, I have a chapter about emotional boundaries, and there's this temptation online to view your work as an extension of yourself. You know, it's it's your baby, it's your story, it's your personality, and it's like ex an extension of you. 
and that doesn't, it doesn't work because if that was actually you, um, then you should defend yourself. Then you should protect yourself. Then you should, uh, rationalize and explain and like fight with people online because the people who are attacking you in person, like you should fight back. And sometimes we get that confused in that if we view it as an extension of ourselves, what works in our daily lives, it's not going to work online. Um, and when people talk about, well, I need to develop thick skin, you know, maybe I just don't have thick enough skin to like create online. Um, there can be kind of this misnomer that that means we need to numb ourselves to the pain of being hurt, or we need to not care that people are being abusive to us. Um, and that's not great for your mental health, for your emotional health. Like those aren't like healthy patterns to be in. Um, so instead I view thicker skin, like, and in the book I go through just very tactical reframes, um, to view our work differently, that it's separate from us, that it's a created thing. It's not us. Um, and people can attack a created thing and we can be like at home chilling, drinking tea or going for a hike. Like we live separate lives from the things we create. Um, and so I think that, that kind of helps people understand like how to view that work online and how to be okay with, you know, it being attacked or criticized or misunderstood. How long did it take you to reframe that, um, internally? Cause we could say, Hey, we're going to reframe it and we're not going to yeah. take things personally, but you put a ton of time and effort into a specific project. So how long did it take you to decouple and actually distance yourself from the work and yourself? I would say it's still a work in progress. Um, I have definitely have inflection points where I'm like, Oh, that's right. I have to go back to kind of this foundational truth. But I would say in the first two, three years, um, I made a good deal of progress. Like I probably got 80% of the way there. And, and that's something I try to kind of highlight in the book is there's, there's a big character arc from where I started to kind of landing on these ideas and these principles. Like you see all the messiness in between and kind of all the ways I failed at it. And I'm just curious if, if you have something uh, handy to share, but you said it's a work in progress mm -hmm. as you know, we're all works in progress all at any given time, but is there a specific thing that sort of triggers you, um, in this specific area? I know for me, um, I do a lot of YouTube videos, so I do browse through the comments. Most of them are positive, you know, but occasionally you get the, the outlier and I'll start to reply and then realize what am I doing? And then, you know, discard that comment, get out of there. And then usually that's good enough. I'll write like two words, but yeah, I'm just curious if there's a, an area where you can't help yourself, but take a, a quick look or anything like that. Uh, I would say the one recently that's been emotionally more challenging was this book launch. Um, because I had created this over the last 18 months behind the scenes. Um, and the longer I wrote it and the longer I rewrote it, the more personal it became. And I shared a lot of things in the book that I was comfortable sharing, but I hadn't shared before or I hadn't shared in as much depth. And so during book launch week, like 
mentally I was like, okay, this is fun. But my subconscious was like, ah, <laughs> I'm a little scared. Like just knowing it was out there and like, you know, hundreds of people were flipping through the pages and I'm just like sitting at home going, oh, I wonder what they're thinking. <laughs> right. Well, the, I love the meta um, situation where if anyone had criticism for you, like you wrote the book that you should be reading to be able to get over it. So <laughs> yes. you, you have the... You have the tools right there. And I, it was one of the reasons I wrote this book. You know, there's a, a quote that says, you should write the book that you need to read. And this is the book I needed. This is the book that I still need. And so during McLaughlin's week, like I went back through and I was like reading chapters from like old Jillian who was like calm and composed and, and current Jillian who really needed that pep talk. Yeah. Well, let's move on to bullet point number three. I really like what you said in this part. You said in an attempt to make everyone happy, no one is engaged or interested. And that's completely true because if you don't want to piss anyone off, your writing is going to be so boring. You're never going to take a stand on, on anything and it's going to be the most boring thing ever. But I contrast with that, that with people like Kiyosaki, the rich dad, poor guy, poor dad, rich dad, poor dad, <laughs> who... Like every three months, he's throwing out some controversial bunch of bullshit on the internet. His latest one was in October, one of the greatest stock market crashes of all time is coming. And I don't think he really believes that. I think he's just trying to get attention. So I think you have to find a middle point in there. And maybe it's just being true to your own voice. What What do you have to say about that? Yeah, it's it's tough because that kind of inflammatory garbage does get a lot of attention and attraction online. Um, but I think more in this, you know, not attempting to make everyone happy. I think it's being honest and and sharing things that you really think or you really believe or you're really passionate about. Um, whether that's thoughts or stories or ideas or whether that's, you know, your art and your craft and your work and your business, like doing something that kind of does something for you in a hope that it will do something for someone else. Um, instead of being like, well, you know, I'm really excited about this, but I could see how some people might not like it. And just being like, it's okay. Cause it's not for everybody. Yeah. So why do you think we care what random people think about us on the internet? Because I know I care. I know it used to bother mm -hmm. me too. Like more like if my mom went on there and said, I don't like this too much, I'd be like, whatever. But if some <laughs> random person who I've never met, some dysfunctional uh, jerk sitting in their parents' basement said that, I I take it a little bit harsher. Why Why do you think mm -hmm. our, we're wired to do that, think like that? I actually cut an entire chapter out of the book. Um about this scientific theory that we were created to live in groups of 150. Um, and they track throughout time, whether in schools or churches or organizations or workplaces, once a group gets to 150, they typically break into two groups. And it's kind of right around that number. And they theorize that our emotional bandwidth, our emotional intelligence is capable of being in relationship with about 150 people. And over the last two decades, the internet has broke that. Um, we haven't changed though. <laughs> like we haven't developed as quickly as the internet has. We haven't gone from like, I can care about what 150 people think 
about me to I can care what a hundred thousand or what a million people think about me. Um, we haven't we haven't increased our capacity in that. So I think we're we're designed to care because we're designed to live in community. We're designed to live in relationship, and our survival used to be essentially dependent on it, but it is still largely dependent on it for you to be able to get along with others and to be well-liked and well-respected and esteemed in your community, in your place of work, in, you know, the groups that you're a part of is really essential to our humanity. So I think we're created to care. Um, And that's where that emotional boundary comes in that I should care about my real in-person relationships But my work is a created thing. And it's not me. It's not an extension of me. Um, If it has to be my child, it's my full-grown full-grown adult who has like gotten a job and moved out and lives on his own. And like if he has a disagreement at work, I'm not gonna show up and like defend him and like fight people about this. Like he's living his own life. Um, and I think that's kind of how we have to view our work in order to like stay sane. Yep. And I, I've read or heard that same theory and that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I don't know all the, the facts and research behind it, but when I think about my, my life and the people that I know, like, yeah, some people's opinions are important, but yeah, it's really tough. If you, if you're trying to consider everyone's thoughts, like you said, hundred thousand people. How are you supposed to deal with that? Like you can't effectively deal with that emotionally or, I mean, even if you could deal with it emotionally, like that's not a good, I mean, there's nothing you could do with a hundred thousand opinions. I don't think, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Circles of control. Doug, I think this next question was yours. You want to take it? Sure. And I think you alluded to it a little bit. So what are effective ways to get feedback from comments or, you know, actual criticism to help you improve, especially when you're trying to stay away from trolls. So you mentioned your husband does take a look and acts as a buffer. Any other strategies that you can offer specifically? You know, I think in like news articles, there's very little helpful feedback or criticism because it's just not nuanced conversation. And so I have a chapter about um, like who gets a seat at the table whose opinions matter. Um, And when you're facing a choice in your business and your work or your creative life, like I think you should intentionally choose who you invite to that table, who gets to speak into your life, who gets a vote. You know, if, if you're going to pull a committee of people, if it's like, you know, I'm going to live my life by committee approval then you should definitely carefully choose that committee. And it cannot be the entirety of the internet. Um, So I think knowing, you know, knowing whose opinions matter on certain things, and you can have different committees for different elements. Um, And even when you make a mistake or you see like a whole bunch of people are being critical, I would find those five to seven people about that topic and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Um, What do you guys think? You know, is, am I being too controversial? Am I, um, you know, are these things that people might be saying out there? Does it, does it hold water? Is it valid? Um, But, but each person should do their own job. 
Right. Like your advisor should advise, your editor should edit, uh, your friends should be friends. Strangers on the internet are like unqualified creative directors um, because they might be a sociopath. Like you don't <laughs> need these people on your team. Yep. If, if you get a big enough audience, you're definitely going to get a few, <laughs> a few sociopaths in the mix yeah. there. Well, and I'm I'm curious if you're able to share um, like who's in your circle, maybe for your blog or the the podcast, and you could you know be specific if you want to mention people or just more generic for their role. I had an issue come up while I was writing this book. I had budgeted about two to five thousand dollars for a developmental editor, um, and when I went to find find them, you know, I kind of got a few recommendations and I found one I loved. Like I was convinced this was the person I'm not even going to go forward with anyone else. Like I love her. She is perfect. She will edit everything I write for the rest of my life. Like I was so excited and it took, you know, it took like six weeks for her to kind of do the review and get back to me with her estimate. And those whole six weeks, I was a hundred, I was telling everyone I found my editor. This <laughs> is fantastic. Her budget came back at 20,000. And I had like a crisis, like it was more than I had budgeted for my whole book. Um, I didn't even have that much money, like in my business work account at the time. And I, I like panicked. I didn't know what to do. I felt frozen. And so I asked like four or five people, here's the choice I'm up against. I don't know what to do. I really, I need some outside perspective because I feel lost and overwhelmed with this decision. Um, am I ruining my book by not hiring her or like, is there another option? Um, and so I think for each type of problem you face, like curating the group of people that can really speak into that and that can give you good advice and sound judgment that knows you, that knows your work, that knows your goals. Um, and I think it's important to have a couple of those people. Nice. I'm curious, Carl, do you have a little circle of people you go to? Yeah, actually, the funny thing was when you asked this question, you're one of them, Doug, because one thing I find is very few people in life will will give you effective, like, uh, constructive criticism. Um, and Doug, you like you've told me, I can't remember any specific examples, but you told me about things I need to work on. And I appreciate that because most people won't do that. They'll be a cheerleader and they'll they'll tell you all the good things, but they won't tell you the negative things. And that's really where your growth comes from by, because a lot of times we don't see the errors or we're blind to them. So that's where the growth comes from. So I would say the other one that really sticks out in my mind is Alan Donegan. He's like, dude, you got to make better eye contact. You talk and you never look at me and I'm trying to make eye contact with you right <laughs> now, Doug. And you, you don't even though we're over the internet, but yeah, I really appreciate that. But it's a balance too, because you have to make sure you're getting information from good people. Like you said, Doug, what if you uh, latch onto a sociopath and they give you bad advice? So I really like your comment, Jillian, on picking your, if you're going to live by community, um, pick your community carefully. Or if you're going to let them direct your life, you better pick those people out very, very carefully. Yeah. And it, it, the, the other thing with that is I want to hang out with better people than I am. I want people to lift me up instead of bring me down. So I've Stop talking to some old friends because they were on drugs or did some other bad things in their lives. But 
what motivation does a really good person have to hang out with me? What do I have to offer them? So that's my goal, trying to convince people who I think are better than me to spend time or at least have a conversation with me. And maybe that's what I'm doing right here today. <laughs> Very nice. Something that helped me out a lot is one thing you mentioned in the book, Jillian, and I'd like you to expound on this a little bit more too. You talk about trolling and you said it's really a manifestation of someone's own issues and has nothing to do with you. Could you discuss that for a little bit? Yeah, there's there's different personalities. You know, we talked about what people bring to the table and it's kind of like a chemical reaction, you know. If you think about the whole periodic table, you bring one element and you don't get to decide what element another person brings. You know, like you mentioned, it's accumulation of their past and their experience and everything life's dealt them. They bring something else. And so you actually don't have any say over what kind of chemical reaction happens because you're only responsible for one side of those elements. And there are a lot of personalities on the internet, a lot of people who are bringing a lot of their own stories and their baggage. And it's, it's, it's not about you and it's not even about your work. This is an outflowing of who they are as people. Everything they touch gets this same kind of treatment uh, in their life. Uh, I tell a story in the, in the book about one of my friends mentioned that one of his coworkers spends half an hour, 45 minutes every morning before work trolling the internet and just <laughs> trying to break people, trying to tear people down, trying to get people to quit, just writing nasty, awful comments. Uh, that's his morning ritual. That's like how he starts his day every single day. Um, and it doesn't matter whose work he comes across or what it says. That's just his hobby. His pastime is to be awful on the Internet. Um, and after I heard that, I was just kind of like, oh, that's a really sad, pathetic, sorry person. If like that's how you want to start your day. Um, and I can't like knowing that those are just the people that are out there. Um, like, I can't take that personal because it's not personal at all. And it's not even really relevant to my work. Um, and so I outline a couple of the these, these kind of characters of people, uh, whether it's the trolls or I use a quote from uh, Chris Brogan. Um, I can't fix all the stupidity on the Internet. I'm not the dumbass whisperer because um, you'll have these dumbasses who will persist in misunderstanding because they have no desire to understand and they just delight in you squirming under being misunderstood. So you can't like offering more information isn't going to help because they have no desire to understand. They're just here to torment you with their constant misunderstanding of the situation. Um, so whenever I like, I find myself getting pulled into this online, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not my job. I am not the dumbass whisperer. I do not have a special gifting. No one is paying me for this. This is this is an unlimited job on the internet to try to fix all the stupidity. And I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to like actually create work. Um, 
not to engage with people who have no desire to grow or learn or change. It's such a trap too, because you think, oh, if I present a logical argument, maybe yes. we could lead them that way, but they didn't get there using logic. So you can't, you know, you can't work in that sort of situation. It's tough yeah. though, because you think, oh, if I just ask these series of questions, like well, obviously it leads to this sort of conclusion, but yeah. Stuff. No, they have no interest. I think these people are coming from a place where they probably have a lot of trauma and they're coming from a place where they feel powerless. And this is the one example in their life where they get power. I, there was something that went around the internet a couple of years ago. This lady, I don't remember if it was a blog or what she was doing online, but this, and her father died and this asshole guy would send her these horrible messages like, your father's better off dead. I'm glad he's dead. And eventually what happened with this is she came around to meeting this guy in real life, and it, I think that the trolling went on for years. It was very harsh and terrible. And then when they finally met in person, he was like, you know, I, I just feel extremely horrible about this. I was in a bad place, and I should never have done these things to you. It's all me and not you. So I started thinking about that. And my number one rule for internet engagement, if you're thinking about sending Jillian, Doug, or I any hate mail or leaving a nasty <laughs> comment on YouTube is... Never say anything online that you would not say to someone in real life, because if you're doing that, you're just weak and there's probably something wrong with you. So before you hit enter on the comment, say, if I met Doug or Carl in real life, would I say this to them in person? And if you would, um, um, if it's nasty, I don't really want to hear it either. So one well, a quick cautionary just tale for people. Um, Carl and I are much stronger and taller than we appear on the internet <laughs> here. And I know, Jillian, you're, you're pretty tall too, right? I am very tall, yeah. almost freakishly tall. <laughs> not freakish. You you seemed like a normal height, but big. I was not. I'm yeah. not a normal height. No, no, I'm six foot. You are but okay. I, I appreciate that. I don't look bizarre. I just I carry it well. Yeah. Well, and you you talked about <laughs> uh, playing basketball a lot in the book mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Any any lessons from practice or or playing that? sort of carries over to the internet world and publishing and sharing your personal life? Yeah, the whole middle section of the book, the first section is about kind of how to navigate this life online. Um, and the middle section is really about imposter syndrome and how do we keep showing up and, and when we're not sure if we're good enough and like when our work doesn't match our taste. Um, but I share about... I loved, I loved high school basketball and I had an absolutely fantastic basketball coach, Mr. Lackner. Um, but that first week of practice, for sure, people are throwing up and crying, like for sure. <laughs> and all these people are generally me, like definitely throwing up and crying, like, cause we're just so out of shape from summer. Like we had it in the fall. So we were kind of coming back in cold and just miserable. Like he was really into physical training. And it's easy in those moments, like standing on the the end kind of boundary um, and just thinking like, this is awful. Like something, we must be doing something wrong if we're throwing up <laughs> and crying. Um, but we always had a little bit more to give. Um, and, and that kind of lesson that in those moments, what we were doing was exactly what we needed to be doing to get where we wanted to go. Like we weren't doing anything wrong. Um, we weren't taking a wrong path. Like 
we were doing what we needed to be doing. And that lesson has carried me through in so many situations in life when I just, I feel like throwing up or I feel like crying because it just feels awful. And then going, but am I doing exactly what I need to be doing to get where I want to go? Um, And oftentimes the answer is yes. You know, like imposter syndrome, we generally feel when, um, when we're stepping outside of our comfort zone and when we're growing and when what we're doing really matters and it's important. And when we're shipping that work, like we're sending it out in the world and all three of those things are fantastic. Like they're absolutely essential to get where you want to go. Um, but it's easy to, when you have kind of that feeling, that little like nausea and crying feeling to be like, am I doing something wrong? Like, should I not be here? Is this the wrong move? Um, and it usually isn't. You talk in the book about a f- very famous person who had imposter syndrome and the, the story is really good. Can you tell that story? Yeah. Um, so, uh, Neil Gaiman, Gaiman, um, uh, an author, a pretty famous author, was invited to this party of other kind of famous people. And he's standing next to another Neil and he's feeling a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to be with all of these people? And I don't fit in here and belong. And this other Neil is expresses the same thing. Like, I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Like I feel out of my depth. And the first Neil goes, well, you're pretty accomplished. And the deal he was talking to said, I just went where they sent me and I just did what they asked me to do. Um, and Neil Gaiman thought, well, if Neil Armstrong feels that way, if he feels imposter syndrome, like maybe we all do. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. What's the, uh, maybe a very recent time where you've felt imposter syndrome pop up? Um, you know, it was funny. Uh, I, uh, using kind of the ideas in the book, I don't, I don't probably experience it at full force. Uh, but someone asked me interviewing for the book, like, what makes you like the most qualified person to write this book? And I was like, I'm not. (laughs) How, what? No, like there are definitely people who are more clever. There are definitely people who are better writers. There are definitely people who probably have more experience and more stories and like more to share. There's definitely more famous people that could write this. Um, And I think you have to kind of let go of that, like, you have to be the most experty expert to show up. Um, and instead I looked at the book and I say, it's really helpful. And that I'm a hundred percent confident in. I'm confident that this book will be extremely helpful to people. Am I the most experty expert? Am I like the only person who could have written this book in the world? <laughs> no, I'm the person who decided to. And wrote something helpful, not perfect. Um, And so I think kind of letting go of that, like, um, I have to be the best or I have to be the most qualified. And instead, I was talking to one of my friends about, you know, walking into rooms where you feel like 
your work is the smallest <laughs> in in a mountain of work for the people there. Um, and it comes back to kind of those emotional boundaries. Uh, I don't over-identify with my work. Um, I'm me and my work's my work, but I also don't over-identify with other people and their work. They might have a mountain of work, but they're still a human-sized person. Um, and I don't know that my human-sized person um, has something of value to add to their human-sized person. Even if like my work is a molehill and theirs is like Mount Everest. Um, and, and that gives me this kind of confidence in that I'm, you know, one of the things I know I offer is I'm a pretty good friend. <laughs> like I'm pretty encouraging and nice and I show up for people. Um, and I think everybody could use another one of those people in their life. No matter how huge their work is, no matter how important their work is, um, I think I still add value as a human to another human. And so I don't have that crushing imposter syndrome when I walk into a room and I'm like, wow, everyone's work is like <laughs> a thousand times the size of mine. Because um, I walk in as a person meeting other people. Doug, you strike me as a very confident well-adjusted person, do you ever suffer from imposter syndrome or lack of confidence? I think, th thanks for saying that, by the way. I think I do all the time, but kind of like you were saying, Jillian, I understand that people are just people and their work is not them specifically. So I think I experience it most of the time. Actually, FinCon was a good example because I was hanging out with you and you know a lot of people and the people you know know a lot of other people so i was able to get a nice warm introduction to accomplished people with a you know huge uh, breadth of work very talented and i'm just you know some random dude they don't even know so i felt it a little bit but again you know once we meet we hang out everyone's a person and i have some value to bring as well so it's not you know, it's not crippling. The other part is, you know, just, you know, shipping the work and putting things out there. I've shipped a lot of stuff. So I do have a little bit thicker skin. And I think, oh, yeah, I didn't think I should have been able to do the last five things that I've done. And I and I did. So I'll, I'll probably be okay this next little, you know, step up. So what about you? <laughs> Yeah, I have I'm pretty much imposter syndrome with uh, everything. I'm putting solar panels on my house, and uh, I've never done that before. And despite my dad, he was an electrician. I, I did not learn from him like I should have. But the thought I have is as long as it doesn't keep you from shipping, as long as it doesn't keep you from procrastinating, I think a little imposter syndrome insecurity is a good thing because like with my solar panels now, I – I have to get this right, so I'm going to read up on this and watch all these YouTube videos, and I probably won't fail. I've been insecure about lots of other home projects in the past, and I've never failed. I've never gotten one wrong, but it's because that insecurity pushes me to learn and become knowledgeable so I don't fail. I think probably the, the people who I dislike being around the most are people who are confident in everything they know and, and everything they that they, they say is right and there's no way to I'm gonna have a couple of them. I'm not gonna say any names, but once you have that mindset, you're kinda you're never gonna grow anymore as a person. You're kinda dead because you're convinced you're right. So 
I think a heavy dose of imposter syndrome is probably bad because it's going to keep you from shipping, from doing the things. But being a super ultra confident person who can't be questioned is also toxic too. So there's you have to find a balance in there. I think you both have clearly found that. I mentioned that in the book, this phenomenon of unearned confidence, um, where like you really haven't done anything to be as confident as you are. <laughs> um, and you're right. It's a, it's kind of a trap in that people can pursue perfection or the appearance of perfection, or they can pursue progress, but you can't have both. Um, in order to make progress, you have to admit that like, you're not perfect, that you don't know everything, that there's more to learn and grow. And so when I see, you know, I would say that this was something I struggled with in my twenties until I had like uh, a full mental breakdown and spent like another month in a mental, uh, health facility was that I was trying so hard just to like appear like everything was held together, like to have the appearance of like, everything's okay. Um, and that actually kept me from a tremendous amount of progress. And it wasn't until, uh, the wheels fell off of everything that, um, that I actually started making a ton of progress because I could just be like, yeah, I'm a mess and I'm trying to figure stuff out and I need help. Um, and I need support and, and I'm working through stuff. And, and in that, like being willing to be uh, vulnerable in that way, I started making a ton of progress that, that I never made when I was just trying to appear like everything was held together. Uh, that's so beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it t together here because I know we've talked, Jillian, in the past and you've had a very, very difficult childhood. We won't get into that, but for you to open up like that, that's going to help people to acknowledge your vulnerability. That's when you start to get better and that's where yeah. the growth happens. So and you're, to contrast that, you're probably one of the, if I think of well-adjusted, smart people, if I had an issue and I needed to talk to someone, I think you would be one of my go-to people. So you've, <laughs> you've gotten your shit together and that's all <laughs> I have to say about that. Very good. Well, you used a phrase called the toddler skill set, which I immediately, I don't have kids myself, but uh, I thought, yeah, that seems like a pretty rough skill set to deal with. So do you have concerns about the toddler skill set being used on the internet, generally negative behavior and that kind of behavior being rewarded by social media? You pointed out sort of the outrage mm -hmm. headlines really get traction and the algorithms are working really against uh, all of us. So I'm just curious, you know, looking forward, any concerns? What do you think about that in general? It is concerning. And and I think that's a lot of the criticism that social media platforms have taken is that they're promoting bad behavior. They're promoting um, kind of extremism, Um and I think there might be a, an, a, rec a reckoning and kind of a social accountability that, um, you know, I think we saw, what was it on Netflix? They had like the social dilemma, um, 
how how this can unfold and how this can unravel when when the most extreme and negative is is what gets promoted to people. Um, so I think it is concerning and I think it's important for all of us. Like I try to, I try to be the person who never negatively retweets. Like, I don't understand this. Like, I don't understand that. Oh, I really dislike something. So how about all of us share it and talk about it? (laughs) Like, and when I see people who are just the constant negative retweeters, like I try to unfollow them or mute them, um, and try to kind of counterbalance that, like, you know, nuanced, thoughtful conversation isn't promoted, but it can still be what I create. Cool. Are you a stoic? Do you study stoicism, Jillian? Yes and no. I think I think stoicism helped me uh, through my childhood and through my twenties, um, and now I I try I've, I'm trying to push more towards the middle because. I kind of have this philosophy of like, what got you here won't get you to the next place. And, and I really value how it got me through some things. Uh, but I don't know if it's going to get me to the place I want to go next. Um, so I, I like it, but I'm trying to practice it less. <laughs> sure. I, I, I'm asking because it seems to be an undertone of some parts mm-hmm. in the book. Like you talked about yeah embracing discomfort. Can you elaborate on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think kind of like the tears and vomit story, I think sometimes when we feel discomfort, we tend to interpret that as something's going wrong or something's bad or this should be avoided. Um, But sometimes the path through you're going to experience discomfort and especially with creating work online because our mind wants to over identify, um, with our work. Like that's our, just our natural disposition. And, and that can be uncomfortable, you know, to create something that's honest and vulnerable and know that a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand people are going to read it and you have no control over what they think or feel or assume, um, that creates some discomfort, but it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. Um, and so I think sometimes reframing those, those interpretations and that narrative, the setback is if you feel that discomfort and you go, I'm not cut out for this. Or if the story you tell yourself is, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be here. I don't belong because uh, no one else feels discomfort. Um, and in reality, we all did at some point. Right. Um, maybe we just don't talk about that enough. We don't talk about the imposter syndrome and the discomfort, that that's kind of the price of admission um, and being being okay with with that as part of the experience. And, and eventually I think I rename it like the discomfort becomes like I'm excited or I care or this is important. And that's why I'm feeling this physiological feeling. And before I ask the question, are we good on time? Are we able to go over yeah. a little bit? Okay. <laughs> so on that note, I'm curious because you've been blogging for several years. You have the podcast, <laughs> other projects. Can you talk about a time when you've had to pivot 
and sort of change your your path a little bit <laughs> all the time <laughs> all the time i'm pivoting um you know, I think that's part of the process. I, I wrote a little about testing and scaling is every time you go into an experience or a project, the goal for me is to learn and to figure something out and to take in new information and to grow and to build new relationships. And I should take all of that growth and that new information and use it to make my next step a little bit smarter, which might mean a big pivot. It might mean a little pivot, but I'm constantly in the... I'm growing and optimizing and figuring things out. Like I, I definitely don't have a go big or go home mentality anymore because I crashed and burned so many times with that, uh, in the beginning. Cool. Another quote I really liked from your book, and this is, uh, this hits home for me is preparation is a dangerous form of procrastination. There's one project that I've wanted to put off for like three or four years and, uh, it's still not published. Can you elaborate on that topic a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's so difficult because it can, it can be so easy to get stuck in preparation and to feel like you're doing something that's responsible and it's good and it's thoughtful by just continuing to prepare and continuing to prepare and continuing to like, I'll learn more and I'll figure it out and I'll take another class and I'll, and I'll study and maybe I'll get certified and, and all the while you're not shipping the work. Um, and so in that chapter, I talk about kind of minding your ratios. What's the ratio that you're preparing versus the ratio that you're shipping. And it can't be a hundred percent preparation because if, if you're not putting anything out the door, um, then you're probably just procrastinating. And it's probably that imposter syndrome. And it's probably like my taste doesn't meet my skill level. And it's, it's probably all of those fears of, you know, what that reaction will be or that people will confirm that thing that you're most scared of people knowing. Um, yeah, I talked about kind of dealing with the internet in part one and the middle part was about those internal criticisms because we fear creating online because we know eventually someone externally will say out loud and publish for the internet, the thing that we internally fear about ourselves or our story or our, our ideas or our product. Like someone will say the thing that we're scared of, of other people vocalizing. So we kind of have to deal with our internal uh, insecurities in order to be okay with them being vocalized externally on the internet. Carl, why is it that you have not published this thing for three or four years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've made lots of good excuses. My, It's an art-based thing, and uh, my number one excuse is I need to work on my art more. Another <laughs> one is I don't have time, which I always think is not a good excuse for anyone because we make time for what's important to us, so that's not a good excuse. But uh, I will try to get it out in 2022. It won't be this year. I've got a lot going on. Wait, you sound like you're going to say something, Doug. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we have some t-shirts for this podcast and I've been wearing them around a little bit. I get a lot of compliments. People really like it. And I have to say, Carl designed the whole thing and I just gave you a little feedback and that was it. Okay. So people like your art, so that can't hold you back anymore. 
Okay, there you go. I must ship it. And I just shot down my excuse of I don't have time. So, yeah. yeah. Well, do you want to make a commitment to, to Jillian when you're going to ship this? Uh... The, the first half of 2022, if I, and if the I first don't... first half? Yeah, the first... I've got... I, that might still be procrastination via preparation. Uh, okay, first quarter okay, of so 2022. Okay, so Scale would ask, what can you do in one to four hours to move it forward? No, man, it, I really don't have that much more to do. I just have to hit the publish button on some of these things and promote it a little bit. So, okay, I'll say first quarter of 2022. And if I don't do it, there has to be some kind of penalty. Like, uh, If it only takes an hour, though. Yeah. It could happen this week. Yeah, it, it won't happen this week. <laughs> <laughs> things just took a, a really hard turn here. This got... Uh, Carl's going to run out of here. So what would be your hesitation about hitting publish this week? Um, I feel after I do the first one, then I have to maintain a weekly schedule. Uh, this week is might be the busiest week of my entire life. I'm trying to remodel my kitchen, put solar panels on my house, and finish a shed all in the next two weeks. And I got to give that talk at Economy. So I still have to tweak my, what's that, three weeks from now? Less than three weeks, right? A lot of stuff. Do you want to get some lunch See? and have a beer? Shit. No, no, no I don't kidding. want to do that. <laughs> um. this, this is an example, though, of creating rules and adding expectations that hold you back. Because you don't have to publish consistently. You can, you know, I have the whole chapter, optimize for not quitting. Uh, or in your case, optimize for starting. <laughs> <laughs> and if starting means I'm going to publish once and I might not get to the next one for two months. Um, but sometimes with my clients, I, we do kind of like an exposure therapy <laughs> challenge. Like you just have to like hit publish over and over and over and over. And then it becomes less scary, becomes less intimidating. So hitting publish the first time might mean it's not the first half of 2022, but it's a month from now that you hit publish the second time. No further comments. <laughs> yeah. Although thank you for the advice. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Now, now I'm afraid in some future episodes, Carl, Carl is going to turn this around on me at some point, but okay. We can keep pushing through here. So we don't, we don't uh, make Carl feel, feel bad here. One, one area. So you, you mentioned being dyslexic in the book and how it led to some anxiety. And I've heard from a lot of people that sometimes dyslexia can give you um, some sort of an edge as an entrepreneur. So have you observed that as you're building your business, um, you know, whatever your observations may be? Yeah, I would say it started with the dyslexia, um, but it, it amplified with first my bipolar symptoms and then my bipolar diagnosis. Um, and I think it, it does push people into entrepreneurship just in that you realize that the box that school or the workplace or society made, you don't fit inside. It wasn't built for you. And you might not thrive in that environment. So it gives you that permission first, but also that desire to look outside that box and, and create something that maybe you can thrive in and maybe is more designed for you to succeed. Um, because with, with mental health or dyslexia, like you, 
you might just struggle in kind of the conventional system. So, you know, if you're going to struggle, like you might as well struggle with the possibility of it getting better. Um, but I hit a point after my diagnosis and I was, it was my first job after my diagnosis. Um, and I remember going to my psychiatrist and being like, I'm not cut out for this. I don't think I can do this. Like this doesn't work with who I am. And I don't think there's a job out there that would actually work with the way that I am. Like if I need to take a day off, like that I could randomly take a day off when I'm feeling good, that I could do tons of work. And when I'm feeling bad, I could do very minimal amounts of work that I could take, you know, a few weeks off or a few months off uh, as needed and then work more in seasons when I feel better. And he was like, yeah, no, that doesn't exist. Um, and I was like, well, I, I think that's all I'm capable of. Like, I think that's, I think that's the only thing I can do. And, and that's what I created. Like when I look at my business now, that's exactly what it is. Some weeks I work four hours, some weeks I work 20. I'm about to go on a 10 week trip during winter because I have horrible seasonal depression. So I'm going someplace warmer and sunnier where I can be outside and um, like actually take care of my mental health. And then I'll work more in the summer in Montana when, when that works better for me. So I think whenever people bump up against something that they're like, this wasn't built for me to thrive in. <laughs> this wasn't built for my success, um, which is also why entrepreneurship is becoming increasingly like the fastest growing population are minorities because they're like, I know I have skills. I know I'm talented. I know I'm hardworking, uh, but this structure is not built for me to be super successful. So I'm going to go be successful on my own terms. And kind of related because you sound, you know, much happier as an entrepreneur where you, you can make your own yes. rules and everything. What does a perfect day look like or maybe a week if there's a, some different activities you want to do? Yeah. Um, so Monday is for me, it's pretty chill. I like to start the week kind of chill because the weekends with I have five kiddos are a little intense. So I might record one or two podcast episodes. Um Tuesday, I do two to four hours of coaching. Wednesday, I meet with my team. I only meet with them once a week uh, for a couple hours. All projects have to be sorted in a couple hours because I don't like constant interruptions on my other days. Um, so I do that. Thursday, I might do a little bit of coaching. And Friday, I write. Um, and so I can scale that up or down as needed. Um you know, the only thing that's probably consistent is about four hours a week of coaching. Um, and, you know, everything else is flexible. Very nice. And then just to indulge, you know, you're looking forward to this 10 weeks off. What might oh. a day look like while you're on vacation or something like that? Yeah, we, we kind of slow travel. So we try not to drive more than four hours at a time. Uh, like in a given day. And then we try to stay for at least three to four nights um, whenever we stop. So we uh, we usually do some adventures. We get it because we're traveling in our camper. So like 
we don't like hanging out in our camper for an entire day. Like that's a nightmare. So it really helps to force us outside to go to playgrounds, to go to museums, to go to parks, um, to explore, you know, at least one big adventure every day. And we mix it up between, you know, national parks and state parks and playgrounds and museums and theme parks. And uh, we'll go to Legoland this trip and Sequest and Universal Studios. Um, maybe one more Southern California thing. So, uh, and we have the museum pass, which I highly recommend if you guys travel um, and you like to go to museums with your kids. It's awesome. We usually do 10, 15 museums on a trip. That's awesome. There's a couple of great ones in Los Angeles. I'm a car person, and I think your husband yeah. sort of is too. There's yes. a really neat one called the Peterson Auto Museum in uh, like kind of near Hollywood in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'm a little nervous taking my kids because like they really shouldn't touch the cars. No, no touching. <laughs> and I know they really will want to touch the cars. Yeah, they will get angry if you touch the car. <laughs> it would make for a good story, though. Are, are we ready to wrap it up, Doug? you have anything else? I think so. I have just one more question that could be a little fun. So what scenario can you imagine meeting Oprah? So my dream scenario that I want to meet Oprah in is in that she really appreciates and enjoys a piece of work that I've created. Like that, I mean, in any other scenario, I'll be very happy, but like, that's the ambition that I create something that she appreciates. Um, yes. That's a good one. Very nice. That would be very organic. And this sort of leads into a, a question, which is, do you have any tips for people that want to reach out to well-known people without being creepy or crossing any <laughs> lines, which is a, a fine line? Um, I would say if you, honestly, I would aim for kind of uh, middle of the road content creators. Uh, people who are massive content creators are really busy and, and a little bit more removed from, um, from their audience. Uh, but one of the best ways to get to know people whose work you respect is to ship that similar kind of work. You know, if you really want to get to know other bloggers, blog. If you really want to get to know other podcasters, podcast. You know, if you're really interested in a topic that other people are creating content in, you know, share a little bit of that um, because it's easier to get to know you um, from my perspective, if there's a means for me to get to know you, like if you're sharing on social media, if you're sharing some of yourself, but you think about that dynamic otherwise is like, I'm not going to share anything about myself, but I want to connect with someone who shares a lot about themselves. And it's very lopsided where, um, you know, it's easy for me and Carl to be friends because we both create content and like, we can get to know each other through our content and then it's easier in person. Uh, where if I never created anything, uh, it's a little bit trickier to, to get to know people. Very so that's good. like the hardest way to do it. But, um, but honestly it's the best. Um, 
And if nothing else, interact and engage online. I'm actually not very hard to get to know. Uh, like for me, um, if people engage a bunch on social media, if they subscribe to my email newsletter and respond, if they show up at events that I'm speaking at, like I'm not standoffish or aloof. Like I like meeting everyone. Um, so it's probably not as hard as people might imagine. Yeah, that's a great tip. I'm thinking right now, uh, I listened to a Tesla podcast and this guy worked for a video game company and he started this and he eventually got to meet Elon Musk and interview him on the show. And I would suspect he would never have thought that would have happened when he started, but there you have it. He's talking to Elon Musk and at Tesla headquarters for a couple hours. So amazing. Wow. But the, the one thing I wanted to say about the book, which I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation is I think you shortchanged it a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> you, you state the book is intended to be read by content creators on the internet or someone who wants to ship a product on the internet. But the thing I thought of when I was reading this is there's a lot of valuable information in here just for day-to-day -day life existence and dealing with, with, diff with difficult people. And specifically, mm -hmm. I wrote, uh, uh, there's lessons on confidence and insecurity, discomfort, persistence, and just how to uh, how to deal with hard people on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, one of the topics that we didn't get to, but I, I really like this, and this has echoes of stoicism in it too, and it is you, you get to choose when to be offended, and that's so great. Like, uh, why are we mad when some moron leaves a, a bad comment on our blog post? Why are we mad when someone cuts them off? And maybe that person left the the bad comment had a different childhood, it had a difficult childhood, and that's just the manifestation of that. Or maybe the person who cut you off is on their way to the hospital because their kid is in there. So we can think about these and, and choose to be offended or, or not. And I really like that lesson and many of the other lessons. They're not just applicable to creating content online. They're applicable to life in general. So... If you think this book might be interested, interesting to you at all, even if you don't create content on the internet, I encourage you to check it out, get it from your library, or purchase it. And Jillian, if you would tell us the name of the book again, when it comes out, and how people can get it. Yep. Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World. And it's out now, and it's available everywhere. Um, and you can even request it that your library purchase it, and then you can get it from your library. Yeah, um, and the audio version will probably be out in a month or so. We're still editing that. <laughs> okay, okay, but all the all the print versions, the Kindle version, all of that's available. All right. Did you read um, it yourself, by the way? Yes, I did. That was challenging. Oh yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Uh, but you're right. It's I I tried to gear it to a specific audience, but the reality is, it's a lifetime of my of, of my learning, of my education, of my figuring out, of me learning how to manage difficult relationships. Um, and it's all of my clients, you know, it's all of their experience and their stories, um, of trying to do new things, of trying to retire early, of trying to take a mini retirement and all of these things come up and these are the solutions. So that I've, that I've slowly pieced together and figured out. Very awesome. Well, it was great chatting with you today and people could check out the book. You have other stuff out there. So you have a podcast and a blog. Do you want to just mm -hmm. mention those? We'll put links for everything so folks could get to it, but you just want to plug your stuff here. 
Yeah, jillianjohnsrude.com um, or on social media, Jillian Johns Road, um, it kind of everywhere. And uh, especially for small business owners, uh, if you go to jillianjohnsrude.com slash content, I have a free course there on like how to start creating content to find customers online. So that might be helpful. Perfect. And your podcast? Everyday Courage. Awesome. Very cool. Well, thanks a lot, Jillian. It was great talking yeah, to you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much.